This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Alternate reality tech levels. Sarah Salt Hill. Emergent continuity. And Ellie Starr. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to your existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, it's not shag carpet necessarily. Could be linoleum, could be formica, could be bear skins. We don't know. We don't know if the miniatures are made of pewter or nano metal or tiny homunculus that have been flash frozen using an advanced nitrogen process because we don't know what's going on. Thank God that the Doritos are still the same extruded corn matter. That's true in all realities, but in many realities, Robin, there's alternate technology. Oh, but wait, and aren't, aren't these armadillo-flavored uh, Doritos? I didn't say the flavors were the same, Robin. I said the Doritos are the same. Try to catch so, up. It's just the baseline. The spices right. are different. The fundamental Dorito, the, the Ur Dorito, the platonic Dorito, remains just as it was when it was first pounded out by the first Aztecs back in Aztec times. Now I'm sorry I quibbled. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> which which could be the alternate name for this podcast, but continue. <laughs> uh, I did not know we were selecting alternate names for the podcast. We have so many to choose from. Anyhow, because as uh, game designers and as GMs, we often have to think about alternate technology for an RPG setting. And in this particular gaming hut, we're going to look at some of those decisions and how we, and therefore y'all, might make them Robin. Yes, and I, ha I have a case in point. Uh, so specifically, I want to look at tech level in uh, alternate timelines. And uh, the reason this comes to mind is that uh, this is an exercise that I recently went to uh, through while designing the Yellow King role-playing game. Uh, one of the four sequences is Aftermath, uh, which is set in our present day, but in a very different historical timeline, one where the uh, rebels, including the player characters, have just overthrown the 100-year dynasty of the supernaturally backed Castain regime in America. And the uh, question before them then is, well, now what? And so uh, one of the ways that you want to uh, establish in the daily lives of characters that they're in an alternate timeline is that the technology level is different. And there's a a bunch of reasons uh, you do that. One is for a sense of feel to create an atmosphere to underline the alternateness 
of your alternate reality. You also want to engage in some extrapolation so that you're not just sort of randomly uh, picking things. Famously, a running joke uh, on this show and and in nerddom in general is that all alternate realities have dirigibles because uh, that's an uh, a cliche way of, especially in TV and movies, of quickly visually signaling that something is is different about this reality. And it's in a Watchmen, and I think it was in Fringe. Another thing you uh, see is that uh, often coffee doesn't exist, which I think just reflects the number one nightmare of writers. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's how you quickly signal you're in a hell reality. And in the case of Aftermath, at any rate, I wanted to create changes that had an impact on investigative play so that the investigations felt different because the technology level was uh, uh, changed. And specifically, in this case, it is more primitive because the point that I wanted to make uh, in this instance was that having a uh, tyrannical regime uh, that has only crony capitalism for 100 years has not stopped technological development altogether, but it has slowed it considerably. And so basically, the uh, tech level is sort of more 70s, 80s, with a hint of Soviet clunkiness thrown in uh, than the uh, present day technology. And so in the book, there's sort of a list of different examples, and we can go through those uh, in a bit. And but I also wanted to make sure sort of a case by case basis, what was available and what wasn't available. Realistically speaking, if all technology is just older, if it, you just go, well, everything's 1974, that uh, is simple in one sense, but it it's also, uh, I think, kind of fails the verisimilitude effect that you think if, if history was different, some things might well be um, more advanced, or at least some things would uh, be advanced more than others, for example. Right. Uh, so, Ken, what do you look for when you're uh, thinking what to put in? Uh, you like to start with Earth, but sometimes I imagine you're dealing with a, a drifted or alternate Earth. What do you look for when you're setting up your tech level? Well, in, in many cases, it's, as you say, it's about what's the flavor of play going to be? So, in Day After Ragnarok, which is a post-Holocaust world of 1948, after the great serpent has uh, been summoned up by stupid Nazis and has fallen across Europe and crushed them because stupid Nazis, uh, the world is basically the technology available in 1948. So you have jets, you have radar, you have big, clunky, primitive mainframe computers, but there's also a gigantic serpent, which needs to be present in play because you're trying to create the feel of that alternate world. So I created speleoherpetologists who go into the serpent and drag strange biota out of its uh, intestine and use that to create super uh, scientific biotech and other crazy people who drill the serpent's subcutaneous fat layer for oil. And of course, the serpent oil being magic has a magical effect. So you can have the things that you want to have in games of air adventure, which this basically is which is to say super powerful gas that does amazing things, except that it's magic and evil and maybe it'll screw you over. So you can have rocket planes if you want, or you can have anything that I could come up with that makes sense that you might've gotten by ill considered understanding of a uh, giant biota. And so the, it was a biotech uh, nightmare on top of a understood 1940s technology. And I think that's part of it is you take the technology that people understand this is, you know, World War II technology, and then you change it up 
towards the direction of play. So even if you're doing a straight up alternate history where, you know, the, the Nazis won or the Confederates won. So you want to change the technology around, you would say, well, let's see if the Nazis win. Maybe rockets are better because they were mad for rockets. They had Von Braun, but uh, I'll tell you what's not going to be there DNA because they're not going to be doing genetics testing because that's the last thing they want. They would actually murder DNA researchers. So you've got to change all of your assumptions about what is going to be explored. And that can make gaming in that world feel, as you say, different and feel characteristic of that world, as opposed to just a sort of flat, normal, oh, they're Nazis, they're stupid, so technology is only at 1970, full stop, right? Right. Uh, speaking of DNA, that's one of the things that's not available in the aftermath world, because uh, as uh, longtime listeners to this podcast know, uh, the Yellow King role-playing game is a gumshoe game, meaning that it's all about investigation. And uh, in order to have the... Uh, flavor of this setting come through and play. The mechanics of uh, investigating cases had to be different. And so, oddly enough, the things that create shortcuts or uh, common go-tos that the players always uh, seek out in uh, investigating things in a modern-day setting, and they do get a modern-day setting after they're through with this one. Right. Uh, but for the moment, As a treat. they're missing a bunch of this stuff that they're used to having. And uh, DNA identification is one of them. The one that has done the most to uh, trip up other writers, now that other writers are working on Yellow King stuff, is no surveillance cams. Uh, and those of us who uh, have run investigative games in uh, modern day know that the first thing the players are always going to ask is, well, where's the surveillance footage? And uh, we've even done segments on running uh, games in a world of uh, omnipresent surveillance, and there's all sorts of things you can do. But in this instance, there's no videotape. Uh, there's film. And if there's only film, uh, that uh, changes uh, not only what you see in uh, telecommunications, but it means that there's no uh, security cam footage. And there's no thinking. If, if we stroke our chins now and think of other technologies that uh, shortcut games, there's a double-edged sword uh, that I've removed from Aftermath, and that is commonplace uh, consumer-level mobile phones. And right. that is challenging in one sense because the players, as modern-day people, are all used to being able to conveniently uh, reach out and contact each other and members of the group. And uh, here, you have to say, well, you, you have an answering service where people call and you actually talk to a person who's uh, listened to the uh, the call and written it down and, and you periodically check in and you have a protocol where you check in with each other on a regular basis through your answering uh, service in order to determine whether you need to uh, meet up again. Because while uh, having a cell phone uh, makes a lot of uh, mystery plots more difficult and makes endangering the player characters more challenging, uh, it also is sort of a pain when you want them to all get together. So you right. have to do a certain amount of hand-waving to go, ah, and you're all contact your service, and now we flash yes. forward to you're all together. We also very rapidly discovered that uh, Delta Green maintains an answering service Yes, uh, in fall of Delta Green, so that in 1968, we didn't constantly have to be able to, um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> everyone take shorthand notes of everything that's happening. Yes. It's great fun. And indeed, other things that uh, you expect to be available in a modern day setting, uh, including 
For example, the ability to look anything up instantly. Just go to a terminal of a computer and type it in. And uh, too bad, guy who bought research points. Uh, <laughs> I have Google. I have Research 9, always and forever. Um, you can't do that suddenly in the, after, in the uh, Yellow King aftermath setting. Yes, and the other big thing is laptop computers because... Uh, again, to repeat an observation uh, listeners have maybe heard before, uh, the number one thing players don't want to do in an investigative game is talk to a person when they can instead interrogate an inanimate object. And exactly. so the first thing is, well, we take his laptop. And it's like, well, what's on the laptop? It's like, well, what are you looking for on the laptop? Because I'm not going to spend the next three hours listing every file on his laptop. And in a right. sense, even even in a game where there are laptops, I make the players ask questions of the laptop. But here in Aftermath, that's just off the table. There's, uh, again, big clunky mainframes. Uh, so some computerized things can happen, but uh, certainly not the uh, laptops. And that changes forensics in a lot of ways, too. So, uh, for example, you can get the fingerprints, but matching the fingerprints is done manually by people searching laboriously through cards. So it's not something you, you can... Uh, uh, get right away and uh, you can't do like a computer database search for uh, footwear treads or, uh, you know, and of course, facial recognition, forget about that. So uh, that g gives the players a sense that they are feeling the pain of having lived under a repressive regime that has uh, screwed up uh, technological development. Um, and also uh, that means that you can have uh, weapons uh, be convincingly less deadly. Uh, of course, they're always only as deadly as, as the drama wants them to be, but there's no, uh, you, you can't do the scene where there's, uh, you know, 32 laser dots on someone's chest and they know that they're, they're done for that. Uh, the fact that weapons are just aimed by hand uh, makes that shoot out with the uh, bullets flying everywhere a little more, uh, you know, plausible in that old fashioned sense. And then some things are just kind of design based. So, uh, the idea is that cars are, you know, they're older and blocky. They have that sort of 60s, 70s sedan, Buick sort of shape to them. So they don't have the aerodynamics that we have today. And again, that gives a uh, a visual sense for people to imagine of being caught in a sort of a retro world. Well, rather than trap ourselves in this retro world, as fascinating as it might be to go into the stores and shops and look around for Oh, God, why is there no duct tape in this universe? Truly, this is hell. Let's uh, stretch ourselves out into perhaps another segment. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. 
see. The wars where weirdness savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. So uh, welcome once more to Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And this time both Ken and Robin are rocketing you back in time to the day before Gen Con in our Indianapolis hotel room, where now we are speaking to Sarah Saltiel, a, a multi-hat wearing uh, game <laughs> professional. Often people ask uh, Ken and I, how do you get started in the world of role-playing games? And uh, we say, we don't know. We did it decades ago, but you're doing it now. <laughs> so uh, you've uh, worked uh, for uh, Pelgrane and, and therefore for me a bit on some uh, super-duper uh, Yellow King uh, role-playing game uh, stuff that's uh, uh, coming out soon. And uh, what else have you got on your uh, role-playing game menu? Yeah, uh, well, thanks for having me first off. Um, so in terms of things coming up, I am actually releasing an Ashcan tomorrow. Um, it's called Passing. It's about shape-shifting aliens in the 1950s, basically trying to trying to pass as human. And it's being released as an Ashcan with Magpie. So that is the, the, the biggest project coming up. Yeah, I, I am doing some other work for Pelgrane. I'm working on some one-to-one -one adventures that are, are not as far along as I would like, but, but hopefully will continue to, to progress at the moment. Um, and I'm, I'm working on a few other PBTA projects. Right. And you also now have a, uh, a backstage role at Magpie Games, which is? I am the Director of Marketing Sales. So uh, this is, first of all, number one lesson for people starting out in role-playing is if you demonstrate competence, you're in danger of being hired for a quasi-real job at a game company, and that, which will then take away the time. And that is the fun killer. Yes. <laughs> um, so you, uh, so how did you get started on this path? What led you On to games this? in general? Uh, well, and to, to doing it as... The professionalization. As, yeah. Yes. I mean, games are fun and kids love games. We get that. But yeah. How does how does uh, how do how do you go from being someone who is a gamer to someone who has thrown their life away? Uh, a lot of accidents, mostly. Right. Um, so I I write prose and poetry and have done so for as long as I can remember, and that was always one of the main things that I wanted to do. But I knew that I would have to do some other things as well, since unfortunately. Uh, no one makes a living as a professional poet. Um, and so I went into college, and my freshman year, I received an email 
in the middle of the night um, about a class called Alternate Reality Game Theory and Production. And I, on a whim, applied for this class. It was, it was a competitive application and I ended up getting in and it was a year long project that was to train students to create a large scale alternate reality game for the incoming freshmen, for freshman orientation. Right. And that was at the University of... Of Chicago. That's right. <laughs> so when you say you got an email, is it they were, it just it was already part of an ARG where you just get a mysterious yeah, the, message? The previous class created a series of emails that would be sent to the next class. <laughs> it's just self-perpetuating mm-hmm. ARG. Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of theater, and so this was sent out to all the students on the theater list host because it was... It required some acting, so I actually ended up being a character in the alternate reality game as well as a designer in it. So they uh, they targeted the theater kids. So your first game design was for credit at the University of Chicago. Is this correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Technically speaking, yes. And so what, what was your design contribution to this? And what was the premise of it? I was one of the core designers on it. Um, I think there were about 15 of us. Uh, and so it was the idea of taking all the things that you learn in freshman orientation um, and trying to use embedded design to teach this in a way that is not just sitting all the freshmen down in these giant lecture halls. So it was called The Parasite. And <laughs> appropriate <laughs> metaphor for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the idea behind it was that there was this this room in in the University of Chicago that only appeared every 11 years. And there was an entity inside this room called the Parasite, and there was a secret society around the University of Chicago that had developed around this idea of a parasite. And so they, in preparation for the room's return, were trying to recruit all the incoming freshmen. Um, And so we built a series of modules around that premise. eaten by the parasite? (laughs) Um, To help bring the parasite back. Yeah, so to be eaten. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not not to be eaten. Right, yeah. yeah. There's not a box you check, do not eat me. She can't tell them that. Right. We get some calls from upset parents. Oh, parents. They're the worst. <laughs> um, and so the, from that auspicious beginning at the greatest institution of learning in the greatest city <laughs> in the world, you then said, oh, game design, look at that. I can do it. And then what? Well, my, well so the, my professors who are, who are running this, this project brought in a bunch of people to run RPGs for just a fun game night, including Sarah Doombringer to right. run Bluebeard's Bride. Oh, and such, <laughs> such greatness. Yeah, and I'd played some RPGs before, but nothing had really stuck with me. But a lot of the the poetry writing that I do and a lot of the art that I do has to do with ideas of like intersectional feminism and mental illness. Um, and so I played Bluebeard, and it was unlike any other game that I had played. I was fascinated. I asked to see all the papers and look at it. Um, so the next year, after I had finished with the ARG, when it tam- came time to decide what I wanted to do, I emailed Magpie and asked if they would be willing to hire me as an intern. Right, and they did. <laughs> I mean, not to <laughs> jump on your story, but then as an intern at a, a, a mid-list game company, uh, what did you do? I mean, you, you couldn't get coffee because uh, they're very progressive, so what did you wind up doing? Yeah, well, so I it was kind of split half and half, so half of my work was starting, uh, was beginning work on my Ashcan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started working with Brendan Conway as my mentor and started drafting this game that ended up being 
the year-long project that it has been to turn it into this ash can. And so that was the creative work that I was doing. I also did a lot of administrative work for them, um, looking through the numbers, writing up a, a sales report because that that was something that no one was. <laughs> um, that, that, that was something that we thought would be like a really helpful same tool as new for make her write up a sales report. Yeah. After that, have her do a business plan. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, file some taxes. Maybe that'd be nice. And then you picked Magpie because they were Sarah's publisher, right? Not yeah. because uh, you just emailed everyone and got bored of the M's. Correct. Yeah, I, I looked. I looked at Bluebeard. I looked at their other games, and I thought that the things that they were doing were really unique because I think that the idea of um, discomfort in art as a as something that's productive and discomfort with bounds around it, right? Yeah, um, is extremely important. And and so from from that, uh, you've now uh, because you met uh, Magpie and impressed them with how great you are. Uh, they then offered you more soul-killing office work. <laughs> Whereas Robin has offered you creative expression. Is that about right? This, this seems like some shade that you're throwing at. No, no. Soul-killing office work is very important and other people should do it. <laughs> Who are not gifted game designers like yourself is kind of what I'm getting at here. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm doing some administrative work for them, um, but I'm really liking that it's giving this stable thing that I can then uh, use as a skeleton to build more creative work around. So I'm continuing to work on them with passing, um, and I'm in search of other game design projects as well as uh, prose and poetry because I've not given up on that. That is still like a very important thing for me. And then so when uh, you're doing sales and marketing, is a lot of this uh, OJT and you'll figure it out, or is it just you are yourself a magnificent ambassador for Magpie Games, and so by merely meeting retailers and distributors, <laughs> they will roll over themselves to uh, buy many, many copies of Passing and Bluebeard and whatever else? Well, I mean, we have two women in the company now with green hair, so we're, we're going to the witch model. Right, of, yes. of, no. Um, they have so, to do it so that they, you know, don't uh, have their uh, cows given a marin. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, well, so my job was kind of distri distributed among everyone at the company. They were mm -hmm. all doing different tasks, but because it wasn't consolidated into one role, I think it was very hard for everyone to keep up, and there was a lot that could, that had the potential to fall through the cracks. Thankfully, did not, because right, everyone yeah. is, is very very proficient and competent, but um, having it consolidated, I think, has helped the company um, get more efficient in, in the way right. that it produces games. And and, uh, and it's going to help you uh, in your career, do you think? I think so. Um, there, there are some ideas I'm tossing around for the future, one of which is the possibility of starting up my own literary press someday. Oh, man. <laughs> well, when you're tired of the fat profits from role-playing games, <laughs> yeah. jump right into that. Well, I have a lot of issues with the literary industry and one way to resolve that is to make sure that I have a say in what gets published um, and while these are two different industries I think there are a lot of transferable skills especially because uh, we publish through books right, yeah, so there's, it's, it's there's about a lot of the terrifying the thing is the skills you can learn in role playing would immediately make any literary press more professional yeah <laughs> right just let that soak in, listeners. Of yeah. <laughs> our vast literary press uh, operating audience. Um, so, in terms of uh, your uh, your work as a game designer, what do you feel are the things that you have learned already that you're going to be able to apply in the future, and thus, by implication, other people who want to do what you're doing should also learn. Um, well, I feel like a lot of the the work, specifically that I've done with passing, is is thinking about how 
you can create mechanics that that function with the thing that you're trying to do with the game. So for passing, um, it's a, a game that its top level is it's about shape-shifting aliens, but what I'm really trying to do is create uh, narratives that dig into how erasure and intersection um, function, for me specifically in queer communities, but I think that can be broadened to generalized, marginalized communities. And so uh, a lot of the work that I've been doing is thinking about how mechanics can be shaped specifically for these certain s- sorts of purposes so that the mechanics are streamlined for um, the gaming process. So what w- what is the mechanic in, uh, in passing that does this? Yeah, uh, hopefully all of them. <laughs> um, but the, the key one is that Obviously, stats is, is a big thing that exists in many games, but I decided to keep it limited to two stats. So um, the basic moves, uh, for those of you who know what uh, Powered by the Apocalypse is and what it looks like, the basic moves are split in half. So half of them run off of the question system that was developed in Passion, and so it, it refers back to the narrative to determine how well you do on this basic move. And then there are two stats, one's human and one's alien, which in at least my inten- my intentions is that that reflects this impossible balance um, that players are, are forced to try to keep wherein they are forced to embed themselves in this human life but they will never truly be human. Um, so part of the emotional response you're calling for is sort of a frustration and you were talking about discomfort earlier. So the, the notion of making a mechanic to make the player a little bit angry at the game is, I mean, that's pretty bold right there. I'm, I'm hoping not too angry. I, I hope that that anger does the thing that I'm, I'm right, wanting that, to that do. Right, that it's a useful anger, a productive anger. Now, are there other... I mean, how did you get the knowledge of mechanics to be as confident as a designer in saying, I'm going to not just make a mechanic that does a thing, but I'm going to make a mechanic that does a thing on an emotional level that is, at the very least, counterindicated by a lot of other games? I mean, did you play like a zillion other games? Do you, do you uh, read games? Do you go to conventions? What's what's your source of knowing uh, uh, all the game mechanics that you might need to know in this magical year? Yeah, a lot of different things. I've read plenty of games. I actually, before I ever joined Magpie, I tried to design my own game. Um, that did not go well. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I designed it just based off of reading, I think it was Vampire the Masquerade. I read Vampire the Masquerade, and I was like, I'm going to look at how these mechanics work and design my own well, game. Well, that was your first mistake. That was my first mistake. I have now <laughs> I have since learned how foolish I was. But at that point, I didn't know anything about the industry. And at that point, I had not yet designed Vampire the Masquerade. So. <laughs> now I'm sure if I were to read it. Yes, now nothing but inspiration. Um, and so that was that was how I initially approached it. I've continued, like I've read through, like a front, I, I read, in preparation of creating passing, I read Urban Shadows front to back, especially because Urban Shadows has the bit at the back that's basically like, here's how you make basic moves. Here's how you create playbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is reading. It's a lot of playing and play testing also. I think it is impossible to create a game that works without play testing because you just don't know how some things are going to function. Right. Um, and that's even with a, with a very robust, very practiced system like Powered by the Apocalypse. Yeah. Much less a system that you built from the ground up. Yeah. And so, and, and even working off Powered by the Apocalypse, there were these new things that I was adding and I needed to know how they were, how they were going to work. And then I think most of all, I was Skyping with Brendan uh, once a week to go over the changes that I made and enter into this discussion with someone who's an expert in the industry, which I think was incredibly invaluable. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what is a, an example of something that you learned from playtesting and then uh, adjusted? 
Ooh, I'm trying to think about this. Um, I think, actually, I have I have an example. I went to Metatopia because I, I won one of the Metatopia sponsorships from the IGDN. And there, I encountered some players who engaged with race in the playbooks in kind of a superficial way, which was not the, the what I was trying to point at. Because I said it in the 1950s for a specific reason. It has to do with intersectionality. I think that all identities should be engaged with in a very, like, deep and complex way. And so I realized that part of the issue was that a lot of the playbooks, their questions were dealing with their alien life. And and it wasn't really asking them to think deeply about the choices they made in terms of what human form they uh, decided to appear as. And so, and, and that's a very intentional thing. Like, as a character they would have had to make that decision at one point. And so I changed a lot of the questions in the playbooks to make sure that it pointed to, you know, like for, there, there's one that um, plays a high schooler. And so it's like, why do the other kids bully you? And so that's pointing specifically to their human identity, what it is about their, their human identity that is causing them to, to get bullied by the other kids. And so that's an example of a question that I changed to try to point a little bit more in that direction and make them think more critically right. about this human identity. And what is it about Powered by the Apocalypse that makes it uh, the platform that you wanted to work with? Yeah, so I think a lot of that has to do with my background in um, literary writing. I majored in English, visual arts, and creative writing, so a lot of my, my studies have been focused on, on novels, on short stories. And so I think what really appeals to me about Powered by the Apocalypse, A, is that the mechanics feel kind of uh, streamlined in a way that I really appreciate that allows you to get into that like gooey narrative uh, substance but also I like the way that Powered by the Apocalypse generally games tend to refer back to the genre that they're in. So Masks, uh, if you look at the playbooks, each playbook refers back to the archetype that is typical of the genre and I really appreciate the way that it, it feels literary in that sense. So it's an ash can now. Is it? Does that uh, uh, predict a, a grander uh, version later? Yeah, I'm. I'm certainly hoping that that is the case. <laughs> uh, so, what do our listeners have to do to make that the case? Buy the book, please. <laughs> um, we will be selling it at Gen Con. It will be available out on the Magpie Web Store and on Drive Through RPG. So. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would hope to make it into a full game, but the thing that to help with that it would definitely be to buy it and support it. Well, Sam, that sounds like the end of an interview, so thank you very much for uh, stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. The best of Ask Figeln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Keep this the timeline where this podcast exists by joining such Patreon backers as... Alex Johnston. Andrew Dacey. Mark Galliotti. Rafe Ball. And Ariel Celeste. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, beloved Patreon backer Andrew Miller has a question specifically for Ken, asking him to amplify uh, something that you uh, said uh, off the cuff, and we'll see if we can amplify it enough to turn it into uh, uh, 12 to 13 to 14 minutes worth of palaver, Ken, and that statement was, emergent continuity is the best continuity. Ken, do you remember the context of this? I don't need to remember the context because, Robin, it's an eternal truth. It's, it's like a thing you always neighbor. say? It's is just, this a thing you always say, it's Ken? A, it's a thing I apparently don't say enough if Andrew Miller is just hearing about it, but I certainly do always say it. The notion being that an attempt to pre-design the continuity of your narrative is not as good as continuity that flows from a, a bunch of stories that you already wanted to tell out of your narrative, then finding their own links or you finding ways and interesting ways to link them. And I think you can take, for example, uh, the difference between uh, Star Trek or the first trilogy of Star Wars films and the attempts to reboot and reclaim their universes that followed them. Both of those sort of just grew organically out of the stories. Star Trek barely had a story Bible and often ignored the story Bible that it did have in the service of telling fun stories about what you could do or what you couldn't do. And as a result, we got to know those characters and care about them in the context of individual stories. They weren't just there to um, uh, say something about uh, the the deflector shield because they were being paid as part of an ensemble and and they had some pre-established part of the story. There was no um, sense that, oh, I can't wait until we get around to Sulu's backstory. Maybe we'll never get around to Sulu's backstory. We'll stay intriguingly open. But look at all the fun things we can do with Sulu in the meantime. He can have a sword and he can be a botanist and he can do this and that and the other thing. And so Sulu becomes a better character because he's only in service to the individual stories as opposed to because someone has decided that in, you know, season five, we're going to have the heel turn where Sulu's going to be revealed to have been working against Dr. McCoy all along or whatever nonsense because it was emergent from the individual stories. Uh, Conan the Barbarian, same thing. Robert E. Howard did not have an ongoing arc of Conan's life. He had a bunch of stories he wanted to tell about Conan, all of which happened to slot various places into the Hyborian Age. He did eventually have to write a very broad continuity uh, an essay just to keep his own continent straight. But again, he doesn't force it into uh, an ongoing story. And even Robert E. Howard, who was very, very concerned with the sort of arc of the barbarian and even the of the personal arc of Conan, doesn't force the stories to fit a prearranged continuity. Sherlock Holmes, another example of a continuity that has lasted with us forever, is one in which uh, Conan Doyle just wrote the stories as they came, or Watson recorded the cases as they came, whichever you'd rather. And at no point does he try to keep track of who Sherlock Holmes's parents were or anything else, leaving pregnant space for people to explore later and leaving it interesting because all those doors weren't pre-closed. You can again adduce the difference between the early DC and Marvel universes, which retain their power and interest despite the desperate attempts to bring them all into some sort of universe that happened post crisis and post um, uh, secret wars. Now uh, there's, there's different threads here uh, yeah. that either uh, this is, I think a reflection 
of uh, another thing you always say, or another thing I always say, uh, the thing uh, you always say uh, being the condemnation of the dire botchkoization, the yes. emphasis on a personal story arc uh, and on story arc in general uh, over uh, episodic storytelling. And uh, I talk about the iconic hero and how the, and the iconic hero, of course, is uh, the hero who does not change, but rather changes the environment back to a state of order by remaining true to themselves. And, and they are also built for episodic narrative. And uh, that is distinct from the transformative hero who has a single arc. And then once they undergo that arc, their story is over. And often we are now seeing uh, characters who were conceived as iconic becoming more and more transformative uh, uh the uh and part of that comes from the idea that uh shows are more like ensemble shows so that today the actor playing the equivalent of sulu would expect to have an episode where you meet his parents which is uh you know a a dead obvious trope of uh now quasi serialized storytelling is eventually you meet everybody's families and discover their tragic backstories and all of those things because the actors want something to act and the showrunners want uh, personal drama to trump uh, emotional drama. So is it possible then to have something that uh, does foreground personal drama yet has emergent continuity? Or are we talking about the distinction between the uh, the episodic and the arc? I think it's possible to do that. I mean, you can, for example, and I'm sure someone has, say that all of Jane Austen's novels take place in the same universe and find weird little connections between them. And those are all transformative story arcs for the characters, but they all take place in the same sort of uh, Regency uh, half-life uh, that, uh, that, they, that they document and, and poke gentle fun at. Right. And one doesn't have gratuitous fan service references to the other where, you know, right. a major character pops in as a minor character. Right. Just Why, it's Mr. Darcy from next door here to borrow a cup of sugar. And offer his wisdom. I know there, there's no, there's no cameos, but again, you can, you can look at cases of, and, and there are ample cases. For example, the, um, uh, the Parker novels by, uh, Richard Stark, uh, aka Donald E. Westlake, uh, which are individual stories of an iconic hero, but have plenty of characters in them who undergo change and and growth even though parker's refusal to do any of that is part of what makes him magnificent and characters that drop in and out of the entire donald e westlake universe and so you can again posit a donald e westlake continuity uh, as you can uh stephen king again has sort of back forced a lot of his stuff via the dark tower into the same continuity but even before then Derry and Castle Rock, Maine existed as his sort of Arkhams in which there was a fat lot of transformative arcing going on, usually transforming into a monster, but they still maintained a, uh, their own integrity. And then they built out an emergent continuity around Derry or around Castle Rock. Uh, again, you can have your arguments as to whether or not, uh, the forced, uh, macro versing of Stephen King is an error on par with the, um, uh, crisis on infinite earths or whether it is just an, another magical adventure through Stephen King's head. So you mentioned Arkham, which brings up uh, Lovecraft, who I think is the figure who bridges the sort of uh, lackadaisical, yeah, there's a continuity if you try to look for it, uh, that you find in Doyle or even Howard. And uh, Lovecraft, however, I think connects his stuff up more and uh, refers to his own stories more 
And uh, he has uh, Randolph Carter, who is a continuing character. Not that a continuing character obviously <laughs> indicates a, an emergent continuity, but he is um, he is name checking his other creations and stories, and also name checking the creations and stories of uh, his peers, creating the illusion of a wider world of which each story is just sort of a one uh, cross section of. Now he didn't set out to create continuity as we know it, but I think you could argue that he did. And as an avid Lovecraftian, uh, you presumably feel that he uh, stayed on the uh, cool side of the line on that. Yeah. I mean, and again, the, the, the parallel is between Lovecraft who discovered the need to create a mythology as he continued writing and uh, so Cthulhu is referenced multiple places. Arkham is referenced multiple places, et cetera, et cetera. But at no point feels the need to impose a continuity on the stories. So if at one point the story makes more sense, if Cthulhu is a, is, is a godlike, uh, alien that dominated the world at all times, that's what he is. In another story, he's just one of a bunch of octopuses that attacked the world back in primordial eras and went away. That's what he is there too. Uh, where you see the exact parallel to what I'm talking about. Lovecraft's continuity was an emergent continuity. Although again, he's designing it with the thoughts of like Greek mythology in mind, where Zeus or Poseidon go up and down the, the rankings, depending on who's telling the myth and Lynn Carter's version of Lovecraft's continuity, where Lynn Carter makes a chart and a list and says, okay, we have all of these. Oh, there's a missing thing here. I'd better write a story to fill. Uh, oh, look at that chapters of the Necronomicon that I can write for myself because Lovecraft said there was 700 pages. So there has to be at least room for 700 pages of Lynn Carter stories to fit in. And Sorry, Ken, do you mean Lynn Carter rather than August Derleth? I mean, Lynn Carter, uh, August Derleth did some of that, but August Derleth, uh, if you look at uh, an attempt to enforce a continuity on Lovecraft, um, he, had, he attempts to force a theological continuity on Lovecraft and writes stories toward his theological continuity, but he does relatively little in the way of backfilling the entire universe in the way that Lynn Carter does. You can certainly indict August Derleth for beginning us down the road that Lynn Carter ends on, but unlike Derleth, Lynn Carter's contributions are universally acknowledged to be nothing but fodder for role-playing game statistics. Whereas Derleth, especially when he's not doing a posthumous collaboration, occasionally um, uh, hits a pretty good one. Uh, so uh, another question that I that I can see in thought bubbles above our listeners' heads is, just last week, both you and Robin were slagging the Star Wars trilogy for not being planned in advance, for not being a uh, for being an exquisite corpse uh, that then ignored its uh, uh, latter bits. Uh, we can look at other continuities that failed to figure out ahead of time what was going on and were to various degrees unsatisfying. Your X-Files and your Losts. Your Lost and uh, also uh, to some extent your Twin Peaks where the yep. final wrap-up of Twin Peaks is just, you're off in Surreal Town uh, because the, uh, you know, the original uh, contradictions have not... Uh, working out what was going on and then having stuff me messed around by the network, uh, you know, sent things a fluey. So how do you, how do you square the notion of, we want the uh, latter star Wars trilogy to have more unity with your idea of emergent continuity always being superior. I mean, the, the, the difference being that the original star Wars trilogy was as, as we know, born out of a sort of, 
berserk uh, mind uh, flow from George Lucas way back in the day. Lucas made Star Wars as the affordable version of what he could film of that story. And then uh, Lee Brackett, uh, mostly, uh, figures out where the next arc is. And Lucas does a relatively satisfactory capper at all points referring back to what has gone before. And that is, again, an emergent continuity. At no point does yes, Holmes... Yes, the, the sister kissing is is, right. a, is a clue to the right, yeah. emergent nature right. of that continuity. And, and so, at no point, though, does uh, Sherlock Holmes decide two-thirds of the way through three stories that, you know what? That wasn't important. Oh, and also, Watson is descended from Moriarty or whatever. That is bad continuity. That is an attempt to to create unemergent continuity uh, out of what had been previously uh, not just emergent, but almost, you know, in in that beautiful 70s way, random <laughs> continuity. And the prequels, I think, are another and, and example. And also, we have to say that emergent continuity can be done well or poorly. Right. Uh, yeah. Just as uh, imposed continuity can right. be done well or poorly. And 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 again, the prequels were, were plotted out uh, ahead of time in an arc, and they were a different kind of disaster. So it's not like that fixes everything, but... Uh, the notion uh, that you're attempting to sell a movie as a trilogy implies a through line, right? Uh, Star Wars did, wasn't sold as a trilogy. Empire Strikes Back became the middle of the trilogy because Star Wars made a billion jillion dollars. And because Lee Brackett wrote it, it actually allowed the, the, the jump off to not what Lucas thought the end of the trilogy was when he started Star Wars in 1974 or whenever it was, but to where Lucas could satisfyingly wrap up the story of Luke Skywalker and the story of Darth Vader and, and tell the, 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 the big seventies daddy issue story that he wanted to tell. And, and that worked out very well as a result of, you know, involving Lee Brackett in a crucial part of it. But, but the, the, the continuity this way, which is forced to fit a pre-existing continuity, uh, imposed by, uh, the nature of theme park design, not, not least, uh, that is the worst of all possible worlds. So yeah, you can have, I mean, Shakespeare doesn't like, you know, start writing the Wars of the Roses and say, gosh, I wonder how this is going to come out. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the arcs that, um, uh, Hal will go through to become Henry, um, uh, and that, that his descendants will then go through, uh, to, to end up with the Tudors. That's, that's in his mind when he's writing the history plays, but the history plays are true to themselves. Uh, on their own level. It's not that Shakespeare then goes back and says, oh, no, I have to make sure that Scotland comes in because they have a big ask on this. I mean, it, then once King James becomes king, then he has to make Scotland come in all the time. So we've had uh, examples of uh, later writers uh, uh, coming from a position of fandom and analysis, trying to impose a, a continuity that didn't necessarily uh, uh, have all of the edges sanded off. You had Stephen King as an example of someone who did that to himself. Uh, so what advice would you give to the uh, budding writers who are uh, planning to create their own pop culture universes? How, how not to do that to themselves? What, what are they, uh, what, what's the process and what are the pitfalls to, uh, to not do? I mean, I would say that the, 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 the most important thing has to be the story in the moment that it's the story that you want to tell in the unit that you're telling. If you're thinking, I'm going to write a bunch of short stories and eventually they'll all take place in the same universe. And I'll have a big reveal about that. Make the short stories good. Make each short story satisfying and convincing and fun and exciting. Don't write a story just to lay pipe for another story. That's the worst kind of story. Right. So what I'm hearing is don't include things in any given 
story that aren't paid off in that story. Right. Yeah. Uh, which the, the, they have to look like part of the universe and the way that they look like part of the universe is looking like they're part of the story. If they just look like they're two characters meeting so that we can have a previously on moment, nine episodes from now, that's wasted space and wasted time. And your audience certainly should, although evidence is that they don't resent that. Uh, well, they very clearly don't resent that because the biggest franchise of all right now are the Marvel cinematic universe movies which very, very ostentatiously uh, stop the action in a whole bunch of different films in order to give you what is essentially yeah, they do. an ad yes. for some other upcoming uh, film. And the ones that are the most successful are the films that manage to uh, either avoid doing that completely or, um, as in the, the Spider-Man Homecoming, kind of make a meal of that and make that part of the gag. That right. uh, it is a callback to some other thing that really should have nothing to do with Spider-Man, but it's such an oddball uh, a punchline that it that it justifies its, its existence. That it is, uh, you know, sort of not just a callback, but a, a meta callback. Right, and and I mean, I think you can look at you know again Marvel Universe as a way that they've done it well and they've done it poorly. They did it really, really well. Uh, in the Civil War, where suddenly the action of Civil War stops, so we meet Spider-Man, but because Robert Downey Jr. was insistent that that not be a dead spot, because Robert Downey Jr. did not want to be <laughs> Sam Jackson in the middle of Iron Man 2 stopping the movie dead, it became a vitally interesting, good, compelling part of that movie, and then played onto all the themes that that movie was about, as opposed to uh, Sam Jackson's moment in Iron Man 2, just, you know, stopping the car on the side of the road on the way to the fireworks factory. Right. And that uh, is a great example of emergent continuity because the relationship that forms between uh, Tony and Peter Parker is one that then becomes a big part of the emotional payoff of other movies, but was introduced in that first place just to, because Robert Downey said, uh, this scene has to be interesting on its own. Let's find something. Let's find an emotional through line. Uh, well, speaking of continuities, people who know the Ken and Robin expanded universe know that there's only a, a tiny handful of segments that are typically found at the end of an episode. And I bet those who have been closely following previous episodes can guess exactly what kind of segment waits on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com.
Once more, the door to the spiral staircase past the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky is hung with a sign saying, back in 15 minutes, we know what that means. We know the consulting occultist has gone off to get plowed or uh, eat donuts or something. So we're going around the corner to the uh, somewhat more modern uh, lair with a lovely um, Tiffany lamp here and there because we're at still a little uh, fond de siècle, but we're going to the corner of the French-Canadian consulting occultist to talk to Robin about an astrologer coincidentally named Ellie Starr. And how how useful is that, Robin? It, 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 I mean, it's practically a DC villain with the last name turning out that way. Yes, well, and just like a DC villain, that's not his real name. His real oh. name is Eugène Jacob, and he wended an interesting pathway to uh, occult not not fame, but uh, semi notoriety within a, a bustling occult uh, scene. Uh, with where he, uh, speaking of the last segment, had lots of crossovers with uh, all other sorts of cultists who had their own comic books. So he began his life as a farmhand, and then he, uh, and then as a butcher, and then he made the big leap to becoming the other kind of magician. He studied for a while under the legendary stage magician uh, Robert Houdin, who, of course. Houdini later borrows part of his name uh, from. And so uh, he learns stage magic and then at some point decides to, to uh, that he'd be better off branching off into actual uh, magic, which uh, the sort of magic that Harry Houdini stoutly disapproved of. Uh, and uh, of course, a form of magic in which there was no sort of prestidigitation or parlor tricks or anything like that going on. No, no, no. This was his uh, form of astrology. Uh, he would uh, hold seances for people. So he was basically uh, paid not just as an author, uh, but in order to, uh, he was paid to uh, run uh, seances and astrological demonstrations for people and presumably uh, to make private astrological uh, readings. But why is that interesting or different, uh, one might ask. And uh, the, the different thing is that he uh, based his astrology on the uh, ritual magic of uh, Eliphas Levi, who we've also talked about previously on the show. And so he is folding in the uh, then-dominant form of Kabbalism, uh, which is uh, in uh, 19th century France, has evolved quite differently from the original Kabbalah, but still is... Uh, has a sort of numerology at its base and also the, the tarot. And so he is merging the study of the skies with the uh, knowledge of the tree of life and the uh, secret reality and magical power, the mathematical power behind names. And so in a an account that uh, I wasn't able to find the last time I researched him, but has now popped up on Google Books, there's a uh, sort of a, a Cincinnati Tidbits magazine in which someone, uh, there's a column where somebody talks about what's going on in Paris and they, he recounts uh, what uh, stars uh, sl seances slash performances were like. And he would uh, get people's names and work out all the math. And he would pretend to be confused by the math of say Joan of Arc's name. And then someone would point out, Oh, but in Latin, then the letter is this instead of that. Oh, now the math works out. And uh, mm -hmm. he had a trick where he would have everybody put names of famous people uh, into the hat 
And uh, then just based on knowing the name, the date of birth only without knowing the name, he would then work up an entire uh, profile of this well-known historical figure and he would give all of their traits. And then uh, at the end of it, uh, he that someone else would reveal to him uh, what the name was and he would very cleverly uh, have been right in the in their profile for that person. So that's a very much sort of a parlor trick. And I'm sure, Ken, you can't imagine any sort of way in which someone trained by Robert Houdin could no, find out what Robin, was on a slip of paper. What you don't understand is that astrology is a sacred calling. Exactly. And once you've taken the guidance of the stars and planets into your heart, you wouldn't stoop to sleight of hand or prestidigitation to make a cool uh, piece of paper come up. That would be... I, I can't even imagine what that would be the rankest imposture. It would be the rankest imposture and, and something that none of his uh, fellow occultists ever accused him of, because, uh, of course, they were all uh, believers. And that would be, uh, you know, gauche, to say the least. Um, some of his occultists, like uh, Michelet, uh, thought that he was not as rigorous as some other astrologers, because, of course, astrology should be a science based purely on statistics. And he, uh, in in the view of some critics, infused too much intuition uh, into his readings. Uh, and we all know that uh, intuition is a big part of any uh, cold reading. But he did more than just give demonstrations for people. He wrote a book called Mysteries of the Horoscope in 1888. Nice. Uh, Camille Flammarion wrote the foreword to that. And he wrote another book uh, called Mysteries of Being in 1902. Have either of these books uh, crossed your uh, awareness in your own vast bookshelves? Uh, no, they have not. Um, I don't believe that they've been translated is part of the problem. And uh, Ellie Starr, despite a kind of a fun uh, career, uh, doesn't seem to have made a giant impact on Western uh, or, or rather on Anglophone astrology uh, because when he joins tarot and the Kabbalah and ceremonial magic to astrology, uh, sort of the, the dominant wing of Western astrology pulls back and says, no, 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 we are doing proper science. We're not doing stupid magic. And so, although it gets boiled into the golden dawn system and used by, for example, Aleister Crowley later on, it goes into the ceremonial magic stream. And Crowley, of course, gives no credit to anyone for anything. So we run into a situation where he's, he's too magic for the astrologers and too astrology for the magics. And, uh, I think he falls between a couple of stools. I, I was able to find out that he was convicted of fraud in 1914, um, during or around a trial in which he was named as the correspondent in an adultery case, um, uh, with a notary's wife. And, uh, trouble engaged uh, him there in 1914. There is, two different death dates for him. You have the 1942 death date that uh, some people give. Another uh, source says that he died in 1918. So he's sort of, uh, I guess, excitingly enough, he's in a, he's in a fun half-life state during the, the astrologer, uh, during the uh, Dreamhounds period uh, where your surrealists might or might not be able to go upstairs to a very old man sitting in a, in a garret doing astrology. And that's Ellie star. And maybe he gives them cool um, uh, leadings or maybe he just steals money from them when they're not looking with his pickpockety skills. And that's more interesting. And so it must be true. Right. Exactly. And he, um, uh, and he did uh, cast the horoscope for the wedding of uh, William Butler Yates uh, in 1908. So I know that. Um, but as far as, what he has done uh, for or against astrology is mostly a closed book 
to me because they they kept the book in French. It turned out. Um, now he, uh, as as we're dancing around, he becomes involved with the uh, Golden Dawn uh, shortly after the period uh, that uh, you start out with in uh, the Yellow King role playing game Paris segment. A year later, in 1896, he uh, is initiated as a neophyte uh, into Golden Dawn in Paris, and that would be by. Uh, uh, Samuel and Moyna Mathers, who we talked about last episode, and he rises quickly through the system. Uh, he starts out as an initiate in uh, 96. He's an adeptus minor in 98. And by uh, 99, as the Matherses are uh, growing tired of all the fighting and wrangling around the Golden Dawn and want to go off and hang out with Isis and Hathor instead, uh, he becomes the uh, Paris's high priest, the Hierophant, uh, just in time for uh, for Crowley, uh, who, according to the official continuity, doesn't show up until 1900 to uh, show up and start making trouble for him. And so uh, if you're advancing the timeline a little uh, later in order to have uh, Crowley show up, uh, he's the one who's sort of the foil, the more serious uh, figure who uh, Crowley then decides to uh, set about uh, undermining and presumably who the char player characters uh, sympathize with because even a 20-year-old Crowley, uh, you're going to have to blame as a jerk. It's pretty awful. Yeah. And uh, the reason to uh, include uh, an astrologer of whom uh, less is known than some of the other figures who made it in the main book is just, uh, it's the Yellow King. Stars are very important. Uh, the, right. the Hyades exert a power. The constellation of Aldebaran is somehow hooked up with Carcosa. There's a sense that in uh, Carcosa is partly another dimension, but also it's another faraway planet. And who else... Uh, would be able to alert the uh, players to something awry in the stars of influences changing or even of understanding why sometimes the stars in the sky are black and the sky is white uh, then uh, a guy named star right it's so much part of the mythology that uh, i had to uh, uh, put him in there and uh, so he can be a, a source of uh, information of uh, uh, deathly portents uh, someone they have to rescue and uh very conveniently, he had a sideline in amulet making. So uh, if you're very nice to him, he might be able to uh, make you an amulet that will give you uh, protection, give you a bonus when you get into a, a fight with a, a, a given adversary or uh, might allow you to, uh, you know, uh, shield yourself from uh, certain shock or injury cards. And it does look like in 1899, he writes an article for the occult magazine Sphinx on the character and fortunes of Taurus. Taurus, of course, being where the Hyades and Aldebaran are. So Ellie Star is is on the job even in our reality. So imagine how good he must be doing uh, in uh, the Yellow King Paris. Um, so he could be as, go as far as being the patron for the group. He could uh, be noticing uh, problems happening in the stars. He could see a constellation shaping up uh, that wasn't there before that's starting to look a lot like the yellow sign. And uh, with his many occult contacts and his... Uh, intuitive and mathematical understanding of astrology. He might be able to uh, send them on uh, missions and they could be, uh, if you need someone to send them on a conveniently vague mission uh, where there isn't a, uh, a hook that's super apparent uh, to begin with, it's just, well, I've, I've looked in the stars and uh, there's something going on in this village in Brittany. And uh, I don't know what it is, but uh, the star charts are all, Oh, they're very bad. And uh, Oh, my leg is acting up. Uh, you guys better go and check that out. And so that you can, um, if you want a hook that basically reveals essentially nothing, except that there's some sort of problem to investigate, uh, you could easily uh, engineer that through uh, Ellie Star. 
And on that note, which I can, to me, sounds somewhat conclusive. It did sound sort of like a, a, a wrap-up, a button, yeah, if you that, will. There's a period, not a comma. So it's yeah. time for us to uh, ease on out of, uh, of this here podcast. Look up to the sky. Hope it's not white. Hope the stars aren't pulsating black. Uh, because we would very much like to be back for another episode a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Your horoscope says it's time to support this podcast alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Volpine. Corey Welch. Fred Kish. Gwendolyn Schmidt. And Jay Twine. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.